0: So we're reading from Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. He took a small child among whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he uh, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him. Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the very next moment say something bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It is better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled. Than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Rachel. That's a tricky passage, so thank you for reading that. Um, yes, we're... With, with Approaching a tough passage, so I'm sorry, there's not really any um, Taylor Swift quotes, but I've got my red lipstick as kind of a little tribute to her, (laughs) that's about as best I can do, so there we go. (laughs) Um, So, I wonder, do you think we live in an inclusive world? Inclusivity is the big buzzword. Uh, For Gen Z, and for, for most people today, diversity, authenticity, and inclusion at the top of the list for what people value. Being open-minded and non-judgmental, celebrating pluralism and individualism, well, these are the current virtues of the day. And today's greatest vices are to be bigoted and judgmental. And lots of people in our culture think that Christians are exactly that, that they are intolerant and arrogant. It's one of the biggest complaints about Christianity. And I've heard people say many times, I can't believe that a loving God would send people to hell who don't believe in him. Or, it's great that Christianity works for you, but why do you have to impose it on everybody else? Or, how can me not believing in Jesus warrant eternal punishment? These are hard questions. And to be honest, they are uncomfortable thoughts for any of us. And these objections are not just abstract intellectual questions, but they're deeply personal. They get to the core of what we value and who we love. And hell seems quite frankly, outdated and uncivilized. But in our seemingly inclusive society, Where we want to be inclusive and welcoming of everyone, we are incredibly intolerant of those who think differently to us. Our society wants to welcome those of other cultures and beliefs, but when those cultures come with beliefs that don't align with what our society holds dearly, we don't know what to do with them. And those who have a power and a platform, but who disagree with the current thinking or have said or done something stupid in the past, well, they're quickly de-platformed. Council culture, hate speech, these concepts live uncomfortably side by side with tolerance and inclusion. And so it's a complex mess of desiring to make those who have traditionally been on the fringe of society feel welcomed and included, which is a good thing, while shunning those who do not conform to the new majority's view on morality. The the desire to invite people in has meant that those who traditionally held the keys are now booted out. So, who gets to decide who's in and who's out? Can we really say, you do you, but then gatekeep on people's opinions? And can inclusivity sometimes just mask a lack of care for others? If we really love someone, would we not want to at least talk to them, if not try to convince them if we think they're making a choice that is detrimental or harmful to them instead of staying neutral? These are tough questions for our society. And Christianity has a reputation of being closed-minded and intolerant. But what's really interesting in this passage is that the disciples are actually offended that Jesus is not narrow enough. He's too tolerant and they don't like it. So Jesus pulls them aside away from the crowd and he has a private talk with them. And in that talk, he totally messes with all of their categories of who's in and who's out. And I suspect that he's going to do that to us this morning as well. So as a preamble, there are things that you may hear today that may unsettle you, that disturb you and the way that you think about what's fair and what's good. And so just stick with me and I'm happy to chat more after the service if you've still got questions. But there are some topics in the Bible that we might want to avoid but we can't edit out the bits of God's word that don't suit us. If the God that we follow never disagrees with us, well, that might say more about our preferences than the God that we claim to worship. If your God never disagrees with you, it may be that God is more in your image than the God you claim to worship. And actually, throughout history, there's been different parts of Scripture that people have had issues with. So, the parts that sit really comfortably with us now, you know, things about God being loving or or all people and races being part of God's family, that was highly controversial in other times. And so, when we approach Scripture, we need to try to approach Scripture with a degree of humility and curiosity. We need to see where our cultural lens blinds us to the things of God and how what sounds bad at first could actually be good news for us. So with that all in mind, today I want to deep dive into how the gospel of Jesus is both exclusive and inclusive. Okay, the exclusive, inclusive gospel. And there's three things that I think that we can learn from this passage one which is inclusive that those with nothing to offer are welcome secondly those who are following jesus are on the same team to inclusive messages and then finally those who put other things before jesus miss out on life and the question that we're really trying to nut out today is why should disciples of sorry what should disciples of jesus tolerate and what shouldn't they So let's take them one at a time. The first one, those with nothing to offer are welcome. So if you've been uh, along with the series, you'll see that we've been tracking Jesus and his disciples in this section of Mark, and we've heard Peter correctly identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. But then Jesus goes on to explain the mission of the Messiah, that he has to come and suffer to be rejected and he's going to be killed, and after three days, he's going to rise again. And that message still baffles the disciples. And so Jesus repeats it again in our passage. It's a bit like a bell tolling in the background of Mark, leading up to the big event. Verse 31, "'The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. "'They will kill him, and after three days he will rise.'" The disciples are no more clearer than the last time Jesus told them this. But in our passage, they're too afraid to ask. It's probably that they just don't want to know the answer. You see, for them, being a disciple of Jesus is still all about greatness. We saw this last week when they were dismayed because they couldn't drive out a spirit. And now we see, which I think is really ironic, is that they're literally on the road going towards Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to meet his death, as he's been predicting, and the disciples, meanwhile, they're arguing about who is the greatest. I mean, you couldn't get any starker irony. And the question of greatness is where Jesus diverges from the tide of popular thinking, both to the disciples and in our day. In verse 35, Jesus says these words, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. So in Jesus' economy, it's those who aren't grasping for power and glory, but those who are overlooked and ignored those who aren't competing and comparing with others for the top spot, but rather those who are actually first in God's eyes, those who are loved and seen, are those who come last. It's deeply, deeply countercultural. And what Jesus does is that he calls over a small child and he scoops the child up in his arms and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. I know many people who would do big things for God, who would offer to make some heroic sacrifice for God, to do something big and radical, but who chaff at and complain and resent doing everyday ordinary acts of service that aren't noticed by others, you know, doing the dishes, playing with the kids, having a chat with the quote unquote more grace required person at church, being faithful at work every day, in and out, all the tedious, mundane repetitive tasks that don't seem very important. When I was a stay-at-home mum, I often struggled with this. I wanted to live for God. I wanted to share the gospel. But day after day, I was cleaning clothes that would get dirty again. I was changing nappies. I was packing away toys that would just be ending up on the floor in the very next day or the very next hour sometimes. And I have friends who have... Chronic physical or mental conditions that feel the same way, they can't do anything extraordinary. And so, in a culture that celebrates greatness, that celebrates what's recorded and applauded, Jesus' words here are truly countercultural. And yet, in God's paradoxical perspective, where we measure ourselves by God's parameters, We see that we are welcomed by him not for what we can contribute but rather by recognising our need. You see kids are great but they don't have anything to offer. They don't have any status, they don't have any significance in the world or power and they kind of just take it for granted that you're going to care for them. They don't think that they're independent and that they don't need your help. They actually do realize that they they need help and they expect help. And so Jesus is making the point here that God welcomes those who have nothing to offer. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. So Jesus' kingdom is inclusive. You don't have to claw your way to get in. You don't have to show your religious pedigree or your list of achievements, which I love because it means that even I am eligible. So that's the first point. God welcomes or he is inclusive towards those who have nothing to offer. The second point, those who are following Jesus are on the same team. So John says, and at least it's not Peter putting his foot in it for once, hey, John says in verse 38, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. You can kind of imagine John as the teacher's pet here, can't you? Sucking up to the teacher and telling off others who don't obey the rules well, actually, it's more like the, the clickiness that the, the cool kids' posse have or the mean girls that think they're better than everybody else. He's not one of us. Well, this sort of tribalism is particularly ugly in Christian circles. And regretfully, we see this played out for all to see on social media, don't we? We use keywords or key names to determine who's in and who's out. We live in silos and echo chambers where we only listen to those who agree with us. And we're quick to cancel anyone who we think has sold out to the ways of the other side. Quick to be outraged rather than speaking to someone first. Quick to write off a person in an instant for what we think they should say or do or not do. And often in very complex matters... As if we were the guardians of all truth and God's reputation was solely dependent on us. And I say we here because it's so easy for me to do this, to use a shorthand to work out who to read and who to listen to, to be quick to judge and slow to listen. But as Solis Nitson reminds us rightly, the line separating good from evil doesn't travel through tribes denominations, alliances, or political parties, but it travels right through every human heart. And this means that as Christians, we don't pass judgment on others. We're called to use judgment, yes, to be discerning and wise. Don't hear me saying that nothing matters. But people don't ultimately answer to us, but to God. God. And the fact is that all of us will ultimately be judged impartially by the one who made us all and who knows the depth of our hearts, who is not swayed by bias. And this is actually a cause for comfort, I think. I'd rather know that I and those that I love are in God's hands rather than some angry mob or kangaroo court. But this means that we're called to reject tribalism To reject power plays and cronyism. Because the thing that unites us as disciples of Jesus, well, we see that four times in this passage, don't we? In my name. Verse 41 Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water, so the most basic act of kindness, in my name, because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Being in doesn't depend on us. It depends on whose we are, whom we belong to. John says this guy should be out because he's not one of us. But Jesus says, however, that he's to be included because he's doing this in the name of Jesus. And when someone recognises that you belong to Jesus, that is the basis of belonging and nothing else. The great English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he had a big disagreement with a guy, George Herbert, around the doctrine of the church. And this is what he said, and I think we can all take counsel from these words. He said, now I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. Okay, so strong words here. (laughs) But I love George Herbert. Although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman, I hate his high churchism. But I love George Herbert from my very soul and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did. Wow. Do you have a warm corner in your heart for those whom you disagree with? Could you say, I have a warm corner in my heart for X, even though I disagree with them about Y? Do you consider them your brother or sister, even though you don't see eye to eye with with them on some emphases or beliefs? Now, let me be clear there are first-order issues which we must be ready to die on, but with anything that's secondary, we must not exclude those whom Jesus embraces, those whom Jesus died for. So, we remember that those who follow Jesus are on the same team, and we celebrate their successes, and we grieve their losses. We're not in competition with those who belong to the name of Jesus. So, so far, this all sounds very inclusive and non-discriminatory. But then we get to the following passage, verses 42 to 47. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two feet and be thrown into hell.' And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. What is going on here? I thought Jesus was all about love and forgiveness. And then we read a passage like that. Well, actually, Jesus speaks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. So we come to our third observation, that those who put things before Jesus miss out on life. And I think when when we think of hell, we often have these farcical images of um, Bosch's painting in our minds. I think I've got a, a slide of one of them. Of ridiculous and punitive punishment, all these little odd um, ways, our thoughts of hell are skewed by centuries of mockery. You can see that there is like, um, yeah, thinking of ridiculous ways to, to torture people. That's not what Jesus is describing here. Okay, that image in your head, you need to reject that. Jesus is talking in picture language of a place where the fire never goes out. Thanks, him. That'd be great. He uses the word hell or Gehenna. And this derives its name from the Valley of Hinnon, which is where idol worship and child sacrifices were made in the Old Testament. And it came to be associated with God's judgment. And this place was actually turned into a rubbish dump where where the rubbish was burned continually so the fire never went out. When Jesus talks about hell, he's talking about a place of exclusion and judgment And the imagery is two things. It's both voluntary and and retributive. Sorry. Let me explain that. So voluntary in the sense that Jesus warns sinners, but they do not want to renounce their sin. And so hell is, in a sense, God giving people what they want. It is, to quote C.S. Lewis, the greatest monument to human freedom. And this trajectory of seeking complete autonomy from God begins now and is lived out into eternity. It's a bit like pouring alcohol into a car instead of fuel. The engine's not designed for it and so it's going to disintegrate. And just as a life that is turned inward and turned away from God will surely disintegrate our intended union with our creator and sustainer. And I'm convinced that however truly evil our world is, that even now it is restrained by God's goodness and his presence. And the day when that is removed will literally be a hell of our making... so that's the voluntary aspect and yet we see that Jesus describes God's decisive judgment on people too so in verse 42 he says if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea the message don't mess with God's little ones those who can destroy another person's faith, which I think means causing them to stumble. Those particularly who are vulnerable in some way, those who do that, await God's punishment. And my mind immediately turns to horrific stories of child abuse in the church or abusive church workers who have so damaged others that they find it near impossible to trust God. I read of one only yesterday about a historic child abuse case in the Anglican Diocese of Tasmania. It's heartbreaking and these sickening stories cry out for justice. And without the concept of hell, we don't truly take seriously the scale and the nature of evil in our world. Many victims of horrific evils don't get to see justice done in their lifetime. There must be a reckoning. Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian who grew up during the ethnic cleansing of the Balkans. He writes this, the quotes on the screen there. The day of reckoning must come, not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence and every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. The startling truth is that that is it that it's not hell that makes God morally evil. He would be morally evil if he did not bring justice. But there is a warning for us too not just for those who harm others, but for those who endanger themselves by not taking sin seriously enough. The language is hyperbolic, but the message is clear and all-encompassing. If you continue to do something that causes you to stumble in being a disciple of Jesus, take radical action before the results are deadly. You see, for the disciple of Jesus... The danger to our discipleship is more often located within than without. And of course, we know that cutting off a hand or a foot, as extreme as that is, it doesn't actually work, does it? Jesus said the same thing. He said this back in chapter 7. He said that it's not the external things that defile someone, but rather what comes from within, out of a person's heart. And so one writer summed it up like this, hell is not for the worst people, it's for the impenitent people. Hell is not for the worst people, it's for the impenitent people. If my eyes are looking greedily at what's not mine and I'm envying others, plucking them out is not going to stop me from desiring and chasing after money or success or what other people have if my feet are leading me down a path where I compromise and abandon truth for popularity and fitting in, that desire is not going to lessen if I cut off my foot. If anything, it's going to increase more. So this is why Jesus said in verse 50, if salt loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? We are called to be disciples who are sold out for Jesus. Jesus. And in this life we will face trials, but through them we will prove the nature of our faith and hopefully be refined. So when the cost feels high and the temptation to give in is ever-present, we remember that Jesus didn't just warn us, he did something about it. Jesus experienced hell for us. He shielded us from God's judgment by taking it on himself. His body was marred and broken. He was forsaken by God. We want God to take a tough stance on those whom we have been wronged by or those that we see as deserving of judgment. And that's good and true. We want to draw lines and say who's in and who's out. But when it comes to us, We kind of hope that there's no line. We just want God to be inclusive and say, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay. But the message of the Bible is that we, all of us, myself included, are excluded from entering eternal life by our own merit, by the things that we do. And instead, the greatest one, the one who is first, the Lord Jesus himself, made himself the last and the servant of all. This is the gospel. Jesus took on our exclusion. He took on our shame, our judgment. He was rejected by his own for our sake. He was forsaken by the Father. And he did this, why? He did this to draw us near so that we would not be excluded. You see, you may still find what the Bible teaches about hell uncomfortable, but God himself was willing to endure hell in order to have you join him for all eternity. You see, God meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He comes to us, But he doesn't ignore our need for forgiveness and transformation. It's that he pays the price himself. And so at the cross of Christ, we see this that it is both inclusive and exclusive. It is exclusive in that it says there is only one way to God, there is only one way to come to God. And we all enter the same way on our knees. Dependent on the fact that Jesus died for our sins. There's not a back door for those who are wealthy. There's no special exception or upgrade for those who are really good at churchy ways. There's no entrance for those who will not repent and admit their need. It's exclusive. But it is inclusive in that it says, come, all are welcome." God welcomes all who have nothing to offer but who simply recognize their need. And so, friends, I want you to know that there is nothing that you have done or that has been done to you that stops you from receiving pardon. There is no type of person who is forbidden. Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is the most transcultural belief system. It doesn't matter what culture you're from, what social standing you have. Jesus welcomes you in his name. The gospel is exclusive. It is costly. But it is the most inclusive, wonderful, exclusive truth in the world. And so before we sing our next song, I'd just like you to take a moment now with you and God... Just take a moment to think on who or what have you been intolerant of that perhaps God is calling you to embrace and think about what have you been tolerating in your own life that God calls you to renounce. So take a moment to think about those things and then we're going to stand and sing as people welcomed by God because we belong to Jesus in his name.